This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest and most influential mining equipment trade show. Explore every level and sector of mining September 28th to 30th at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Visit MineExpo.com for more details. Don't miss this decade's biggest opportunity. Welcome to a new episode, episode number 172, Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your online editor, I'm your host, and I help take care of social media. Never a dull week in this business. I was looking at our homepage, X-Valley CEO charged with homicide for Brazil Dam disaster. So... You just never know what's going to happen next in this world. So we were talking about that last week. If you missed that episode, you can find it online on our website or on our SoundCloud and wherever podcasts are available. Uh, But yeah, what a story that was. And so we'll see how that all unfolds. And we also had that massive story on Mavericks Metals that Trish Saywell, our acting editor-in-chief and senior reporter, wrote. It's a huge article, 3,000 words, on a really fascinating royalty company, which grew out of Pan American Silver. You can find that all on northernminer.com. We have another very interesting episode uh, from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And it's funny how each of these guys, there's real variety in each of the four inductees. And this one is more of a science episode. This, to me, it's uh, this is a story of 20th century science. Hans T.F. Lundberg is the inductee. He is the late Hans T.F. Lundberg, and his grandson accepts the award on his behalf. I'm watching a lecture series right now. I don't know if you guys know the Great Courses. Apparently, they I, th- I hear them advertised on podcasts. Maybe we should add them to this podcast somehow. It's actually not a bad idea. The Great Courses has an excellent course, Science in the 20th Century, and it's an odyssey, as the professor calls it. I, I couldn't help but place Hans Lundberg in that kind of odyssey of 20th century science. He is a pioneer of geochemistry and geophysics in particular. In the speech, he is called one of the fathers of geophysics in Canada. So here you see how a man uses science to create what sounds like huge amounts of wealth and really push the industry forward. And you see the creativity that's involved in science. I mean, some people think artists are the only creative ones, but for instance, Hans Lundberg, he was looking for traces of minerals in plants in in a field of research of science that I had never even heard of called geobotany. And apparently... He was able to isolate gold from certain plants. Apparently, it was in such small traces that it wasn't worth it. But the fact that he could do it at all, I think, is a testament to the creativity of this individual. I mean, one of the things I learned in that lecture series of the great courses, Science in the 20th Century, was how science moved from the individual to teams in the 20th century. Now, there's a breakthrough in quantum physics. There's like 400 people on the paper. 
if they find a new quark or something, there are literally like 400 people, everybody who basically contributed to help make that happen. Whereas Hans Lundberg almost comes out of that older era where it was the sort of individual scientist who made these big breakthroughs. And one of the things I like about the Northern Miner is it sort of rides this parallel track. Uh, it's not just a financial newspaper. It's also a science newspaper. It's also a geology newspaper. And so it really, uh, I think, captures the nexus of where science and finance meet. I guess a lot of things hold a place where science and finance meet, but there are a few publications that are really focused, really. I mean, what is the Northern Miner? Uh, you know, from my perspective, it's a basically a geology newspaper with a financial, it's a scientific newspaper. A scientific financial newspaper is really what it is. And so Hans Lundberg fits really nicely into the fold here of our shows. So he is the third of the four inductees to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame who we're featuring. And uh, yeah, it even talks about how he's a big stamp collector and how he's interested in prehistoric bones. I used to collect stamps, so that really got my ear at the end there with the stamps. And uh, apparently he even had that super rare one of the beaver. It's like a million dollar stamp and it's like one of the early Canadian stamps. I remember reading about that when I was a kid and you just, all you care about when you're 12 years old, at least when I was 12 years old, was getting that stamp. So anyways, or just being able to see or read about it. So that is coming up. We have also some news stories as usual. There's more ESG. I'm going to shift the focus a little bit because I think I've given you guys a lot of ESG. We're going to touch on it a little bit, but we're going to focus on this uranium theme because I like to try and get us ahead of the trends. And now everybody's talking about ESG. What else is out there? And we're starting to see a little bit of bubbling up of uranium and the exciting opportunities that may lie in uranium. Now, as someone who's been around for a few years here, this is not the first time people have been saying how great uranium is as an investment, and it's proceeded to go down probably 80%. Some of these stocks from, you know, even 2015, 2016. So... Hope springs eternal with uranium, but there is a sort of growing chorus here that uranium is becoming an attractive situation. So that is where we're going to focus, and that will be in our news section. So if you want to find us online, if you want to see that cover, the cover of our edition of the newspaper, you can find it on our Instagram at the Northern Miner. You can find us online at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, where we now host these podcasts as well, and LinkedIn. You can find our podcast on all the major podcast platforms. If there's one you don't see, email us. I've put in the request for an email. I, I might have sent it to the wrong people, so I'm going to keep doing that. But we're, soon enough, we're going to have a email for you here. So you can send messages and maybe we can even have a nice little section where we read listener mail. So we'll see about that and on to the news stories. And turning to the website, as promised, we're going to take a look at a couple of uranium stories here. And the first, Haywood bullish on uranium sector fundamentals. And I found this to be the most notable uh, in the sense that it's maybe the most head turning. 
Uh, While uranium spot prices were down 14% in 2019, supply and demand fundamentals for uranium are, quote, the most bullish in years, and the sector, quote, offers its most compelling value proposition since pre-Fukushima, according to Haywood Securities in a new research note. And it continues... Looking ahead, we believe we are in the early stages of a long-term bull market for the uranium investment theme and recommend investors begin positioning their portfolios by steadily accumulating select names, the report says. Previously enacted and expected major supply cuts are starting to erode global inventories with primary production now less than reactor demand. Haywood forecasts the average spot price for U308 will increase from $26 per pound last year to $39 per pound in 2020. So a 50% increase. And continue rising to $47 per pound in 2021, $55 per pound in 2022, and $64 per pound in 2023, and 65 in 24 and 25. While 2019 failed to deliver the more substantial increase in uranium benchmark prices we anticipated, so they've sounds like they've said this before, We still believe the fundamentals of the sector have dramatically improved over the last 18 to 24 months and that we are near the beginning of the next utility buying cycle. It continues, Haywood also notes that the global reactor pipeline remains robust and is nearing the number prior to the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster in Japan. So it sounds like the amount of nuclear reactors out there is approaching pre-Fukushima levels. What makes this story even better okay, you know, they're bullish on uranium. That's not necessarily going to change your day, but this was interesting. We were just talking about this with David Perry's great top 10 uranium deposits. I think that was last week. Haywood also argues uranium equities, quote, will lead the charge higher in anticipation of higher uranium prices. And then it goes into its recommendations. Top of the line, Cameco. Then Denizen Mines, Energy Fuels, Next Gen Energy, and Uranium Energy, and it lists a couple of others, and it lists a couple of their top picks out of that group, and so you can go to northernminer.com to see that. I'm going to give you one more little uh, nugget of gold from this article, Next Gen, which we were sort of noting last episode on how surprisingly massive it was once we looked at David Perry's story. And here's the quote from Haywood Securities. NextGen controls the best uranium discovery made anywhere in the world in decades in the ultra-high-grade aero deposit. And then it continues about other deposits. So I'm going to leave that. Uh, Check it out, northernminer.com. It's easy to find Haywood bullish on uranium sector fundamentals. Check it out. Great story by our staff. At the Northern Miner. So that is our first uranium story. Our next one is a snapshot. And this is, we had a uranium special in our last edition of the newspaper. And if you guys are ever looking for our specials and you're a digital subscriber, uh, just go to the bottom of the website and you'll see I put the last two specials, all the stories from there are grouped at the bottom. So, yeah, if you want to find all the uranium stories from our uranium special, just go to the bottom of the homepage, thenorthernminer.com, and you'll find everything you're looking for. And we have a uranium snapshot, Energetic Juniors with Attractive Assets. And this is also by staff. It's alphabetical here, and I'll just mention some of the names. We, have, we profile Appia Energy, 
uh, Blue Sky Uranium, Denizen Mines, Energy Fuels, Global Atomic, Pure Point Uranium, Uranium Energy, and Uranium Royalty. So if you want to read up more on those, just look up for Uranium Snapshot Energetic Juniors with Attractive Assets. So that is where the excitement is right now from what I gather, from what my antennae see, but let's see. I mean, it doesn't mean anything's going to happen, does it? Because people really have been saying this about uranium. I don't think any, like some people never stopped saying it about uranium. It's like some people are always bullish on gold, no matter what's happening. Uh, sometimes I, th I think we have the same thing in the uranium sector. And moving on, we also had a big merger between Equinox Gold and Lee Gold Mining. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi from Mining.com, our sister publication. And both companies approved the merger. So Equinox Gold and Lee Gold Mining are going to create an America-focused gold miner with a market capitalization of $1.75 billion. So they are growing. And the deal announced in December at adds Lee Gold's four mines in Mexico and Brazil to Equinox's portfolio, which consists of two mines in California and one in Brazil. So that sounds like the kind, I think actually Ross Beatty says in here, who's the CEO of Equinox, that's the kind of company people want to invest in. You know, it's safe mining jurisdictions. It seems like it's becoming more of an issue. It always is an issue. You know, it's easy to exaggerate things. When the news is closer to you in time, it seems more significant. Um, but I do think uh, this geopolitical sort of security and jurisdiction, all those things are becoming, I think, more important to investors, particularly in the junior mining side. So we have a quote from Ross Beatty, who is chairman of Equinox and Pan American Silver, and he will lead the new gold miner. Quote, this merger will create one of the world's largest gold companies operating entirely in the Americas, Beatty said in December. Quote, our large scale will provide improved liquidity, greater asset and country diversification, and a lower risk profile for all shareholders. This is the kind of gold company investors want today. Thanks to the business combination, Equinox will be able to hit 1 million ounces of gold production by late 2021 two years ahead of schedule. So M&A, it is still full steam ahead on the M&A train. And this was an interesting, more on the technical side of things, an interesting story. Again, this kind of where science and technology meet here. As Cisco releases data on longest diamond drill hole in Canadian history, Cisco has released results from the completed Discovery One diamond drill hole, the longest diamond drill hole drilled to date in Canada. The hole reached a length of 3,467 meters and targeted down plunge extensions of the gold zones at windfall, as well as the projected source of the deposit at depth. A three and a half kilometer long drill hole. How that's possible, I'm not sure, but that's why people do look to Canada as one of the leaders in mining. Three and a half kilometer drill hole. Let's just take a look at what they got out of it. I think they've earned us talking about what was in that drill hole by virtue of their superb drilling ability. The most recent intersections of note from this drill hole include 96 meters of 1.05 grams per ton gold, as well as two meters 
of 10.7 grams per ton gold and 4 meters of 5.25 grams per ton gold. Results from the final 200 meters of this hole are pending, and we have a quote from John Brzezinski, the company's president and CEO, quote, Discovery One is a great success and achievement. Successes include the discovery of the underdog and triple eight extensions, the wide intercepts of anomalous gold values similar to those observed in the Lynx system, and now these new high-value gold intercepts at depth. These results of the Discovery One hole show that the windfall system is extensive with substantial room for potential growth. And finally on this, Major Drilling Group International, which completed the drill hole, is one of the largest specialized drilling operators in the world. So props to Major Drilling. Sounds like they did a very good job. So that is also in the news. I just want to turn now to these two ESG stories. We're going to be pretty quick with them. There are significant developments here in the ESG space, and it is, the, I feel, the story of the moment in terms of the big story. Everywhere I look on financial media, I see ESG. So here we are. Social investors and lower emissions to shape mining's short-term future, Deloitte reports. And we're just going to read a couple of paragraphs here. The mining and metal sector is facing greater scrutiny from communities in host countries, consumers, and society at large, demanding transparent, ethical supply chains, as well as a lower carbon footprint. A new study from Deloitte shows, rather than declining anytime soon, the pressure to meet those expectations will force resource companies to redefine the way they do business, shaping the sector in the short and medium term. According to Deloitte's Tracking the Trends annual mining report, miners will have to work this year on building trust with communities, consumers, and investors. The report also says companies need solutions for climate change, water management, health and safety, and fair treatment of workers and communities. And finally, uh, investing in environmental, social, and governance is estimated at over U.S. $20 trillion in assets under management, and those numbers are expected to grow. Companies that fail to deliver value beyond compliance could face financial consequences and a blow to their reputations. Quote, Many investors are making it clear that they will not advance funds unless companies can demonstrate a meaningful and measurable commitment to the principles so much of society holds dear, says Leora Black, Deloitte Australia's principal of risk advisory. Quote, this causes mining companies to consider not only threats to public trust, but also potential. And BHP recently committed $400 million U.S. over five years to lower greenhouse gas emissions from its operations and mined commodities. And Rio Tinto, the world's second largest miner, signed a pact last year with China's biggest steelmaker, Baowu, to develop and implement ways to lower carbon emissions in the steel sector, which is responsible for 9% of global carbon dioxide emissions. So more on that at northernminer.com. Social investors and lower emissions to shape mining's short-term future, Deloitte reports. You know, just think about that headline for a second. Social investors in lower emissions to shape mining short-term future. Like shape is to shape. So that's how important this is for mining right now. It's kind of uh, front and center, we might say. 
And we have another one here. Miners should adopt, quote, next generation values to battle reputation crisis, says Anglo-American boss. Now, I thought the timing of this was a little unfortunate, considering Anglo-American just reported a roof collapse at its Queensland coal mine. But nevertheless, uh, and nobody got injured there, we should add. And that story is also on thenorthernminer.com. We can't cover everything here, so we just sort of pick and choose. Um, But yeah, the Anglo-American CEO, Mark Kudifani, said, quote, we need to connect the future of mining with next generation societal values. Kudifani told delegates at African Mining in Daba, the continent's biggest gathering of professional from the resource extraction sector. It's an interesting term, next generation societal values. It's a little vague. I mean, I think we know what he means, but next generation societal values, I think we all know what that means. But I do, uh, when you look at the language closely, it's, yeah, well, he's more specific. Here we go. These are the values of increased transparency, responsible technological innovation, sustainability, and shared prosperity, all of which are emergent in our world and are shaping a very different future society. And the article says his blunt assessment comes as mining companies are under increasing investor pressure to curb carbon emissions, which has led them to shed the most polluting power sources and seek lower costs by using alternatives. And he continues, they have another quote from him. He's pretty quotable in this. If we are going to continue to play an instrumental role in powering human progress into the future, we need to ask ourselves some tough but necessary questions about our values as an industry. And we have a further quote. I'm skipping down in the article a little bit to get to the next quote. The metals and minerals that we produce are the essential raw materials for all our modern lives, from the platinum group metals that clean vehicle emissions or enable hydrogen energy, to the copper essential for renewable energy and all our phones and other devices. I believe that mining has the opportunity to not only continue positively powering human progress, including through technology, towards a cleaner, greener, more sustainable world, but to do so in a way that is more closely aligned to what society expects of us. This is how we will deliver enduring value, locally and globally, Kudifani concluded. So this came from mining.com. Cecilia Jamazmi is right on this ESG beat. So she's doing great work here. And uh, yeah, so there you have it. Miners should adopt next generation values to battle reputation crisis, according to Anglo-American boss. So there is your ESG update. Now, shifting over a couple of, just want to touch on a couple of more things here. China's MMG suspends copper shipments from Las Bambas, which is in Peru. Uh, Chinese miner MMG has once again halted copper shipments from its Las Bambas operation, one of Peru's largest copper producers following a road blockade by a local community protesting against alleged ongoing pollution of their lands. And, you know, I could, like, this is, I could just go on and on here. So that's also on the northernminer.com. Cecilia Jamazmi, great work, mining.com. Yeah, China is facing protest against pollution in Peru. So the plot thickens. And finally, I just want to touch on a staff story. Bank of America boosts palladium price forecast. So palladium, 
Just before we get to metal prices here, I thought we could leave off with palladium price predictions. Palladium is, you know, it's up. I think in the summer it was around $1,500. Now, well, we'll see what it is. It's basically around 20, I think it's $2,399 is the quote that we're going to come to here. So it's up about 50%, more than 50%. And so palladium has just rocket launched on a full-on bull market here. And so let's just look at the article. Palladium prices have surged 1,520% since 2009 due to tight supply and higher emission standards. And analysts at the Bank of America forecast the metal could rise to $3,500 US per ounce in the fourth quarter of 2020 from the current spot price when this was written of $2,302.75. Our today's quote is 2000 399. B of A thinks it's going up to $3,500 US per ounce by the end of the year. The bank estimates that palladium will rise to an average price of $2,450 per ounce in the first quarter and to $3,000 per ounce during the second and third quarters for a full year average price of $2,988 per ounce in 2020. Yeah, so let's just look at some of the reasons before we move on to metal prices here. With inelastic demand meeting inelastic supply, deficits have long been plugged by inventories, squeezing palladium violently higher, the B of A notes. Having been in deficit for almost a decade, palladium demand keeps increasing on the drive to make the economy greener. Miners churn out less metal at present than in 2004, although recyclers have been picking up some of the slack. The bank is quick to point out, however, that, quote, there is only limited scope for a step up in recycling palladium. Meanwhile, producers haven't started substituting palladium with platinum, according to the bank. All sorts of little interesting things going on in commodities, isn't there? Now, everything in the stock market, except for energy (laughs) and maybe mining, has gone up. And uh, yeah, look at Exxon. Look at Exxon. It's almost at a 6% dividend right now. It's getting pretty crazy. Things are looking interesting in the metals and in commodities. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. Metal prices. These prices are courtesy of Infomine.com. If you're ever looking for these prices, uh, simply put in a search for metal prices in Infomine, and this page will appear. And on February 4th, gold is at $1,570.19. That is $9 lower than last week. Silver is $17.73 per ounce. And that is 32 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $978.49 per ounce. And that is $11 less than last week. Palladium is at $2,399.78. And that is $100 higher than last week. And so what you saw was two weeks ago, palladium was at $2,479. That's what we quoted it at. Then it dropped back to $2,298. And now it's at $2,399. So 
this continues to be a bull market. Nothing goes straight up. I, I don't have an expertise at all in technical analysis, but when you look at the chart, it looks still quite healthy. And on January 31st, our industrial metals, uh, copper is at $2.53 per pound, and that is 17 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is, is at 78 cents per pound, which is 3 cents lower than last week. Lead is at 85 cents per pound, which is 4 cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $5.75 per pound, which is 14 cents lower than last week. Tin is at $7.38 per pound, which is 29 cents lower than last week. Cobalt is up. It is at $15.76, which is $1.13 higher than last week. And zinc is at $1.01 per pound, and that is six cents lower than last week. So to call it a bloodbath is an overstatement, but almost everything lower except for palladium and cobalt. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have a presentation on the late Hans Lundberg at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. This is our third inductee of four that we will profile on this program. Anthony Vaccaro introduces the video. And then after the video, John Baird, who is chairman of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, introduces grandson Kim Lundberg. And then Kim Lundberg gives a speech about his grandfather. Few people have done more to introduce science and technology to mineral exploration than Hans Lundberg, a visionary pioneer in the development and application of geophysical and geochemical methods in Canada and other parts of the world. So if you're of a technical background or just interested in mining in general, this episode is for you. I hope you enjoy it and we'll see you on the other side. Our next video honors the life and work of the late Hans Lundberg. Please roll the video. The memories Kim Lundberg has of his grandfather, affectionately known as Far Far, consist of the many things Hans collected on his travels and Kim's childhood memories of his visits. When we came to visit, he'd hand us a handful of uh, pencil crayons, colored pencil crayons, and he'd take us down into the basement and he had these huge walls with magnetometer survey results graphed out on paper. You know, he'd hand me a red one and he said, I want you to fill this one with red and my brother would get one and he'd do the yellow part. As children, they were unaware of his impact on the mining industry. I would say that Lundberg was one of the fathers of geophysics in Canada, but other people who are geochemists may say that he was one of the fathers of geochemistry in Canada. He actually created the core of people that became the founders of modern exploration geochemistry in Canada. Hans Lundberg's story began in Sweden. My grandfather was born at Bullerbakken which is the family home in Lydia, which is the East Island of Stockholm across the bay from the main city. 
He had an early interest in mining. I mean, in 1911, he was making sketches of miners, mines, and mining operations in a little sketchbook. So there's obviously something that fascinated him about mining that was an abiding interest for the rest of his life. After graduating from the Royal Institute of Technology in Sweden, Hans Lundberg became a lecturer at the Institute. While still in his 20s, he and a colleague developed the award-winning equipotential method, which led to the discovery of deposits in Sweden in 1918 and 1922. The equipotential method that he invented with his colleague was a technique where you would inject current into the ground at a very low frequency, essentially what's known as a direct current technique, and you would measure the potential on the ground and find places where the potential was equal. And by looking at how that potential distorted itself on the surface of the ground, you could work out if there were conductive features underneath. His acclaim in Sweden attracted attention from the United States. He came over in, I believe, 1923 at the behest of a a financier in New York. His first contract was for six months, and I believe he was offered uh, $125 US per day, which in those days would have been, for some people, a year's salary. When working for Asarco, he made one of his most important discoveries at Buckins in Newfoundland, where he was one of the first to combine geophysical and geochemical surveys. They did a survey in a swampy area uh, where there was no obvious geology. No sooner did they uh, dig down below the cover than they found mineralization. And so they transformed something that had been of interest into what became a very important mine, the largest mine of its kind in Canada at the time. And so that basically sealed his reputation. 1926, he became kind of a rock star overnight. He also experimented with geobotany, looking for traces of minerals and plants. He harvested the plants and burned the leaves and extracted gold from what was left of the ash. It didn't amount to a whole lot of gold, but it did work. That was the point of that exercise. Hans Lundberg operated a successful company in Canada during the 1930s and 40s, working on over 40 projects across Canada but he may be best known for his work with airborne geophysical surveys using helicopters and fixed-wing aircraft, and working with his son, Stan, a World War II pilot. He was one of the first people in Canada to buy a helicopter. He and his son would go out and collect the, the geophysical data. One of the first instruments that they put on the helicopter was a magnetometer, and he used that to collect aeromagnetic data. He didn't limit his efforts to mining, he gained recognition for using his technology in unusual ways. One was offering to help an oil company survey for petroleum. He said, if it's successful, if I help you find oil, you give me an oil well. And apparently that well produced something like $25,000 a month for years. And so that was his way of getting paid. He also gained recognition for finding prehistoric bones in Mexico and an ore body in a crater in Arizona. Some say Hans Lundberg was a man on the forefront of the industry, as evident in the talk from 1948. He talks about 3D visualization of the Earth. He talks about using aerial surveys in all manner of ways to, to obtain information about 
the near surface and the subsurface. He jumped ahead 40 to 50 years in that talk. And you look at it and you say, where did he get that information? There was nothing existed like that. And he predicted all of this just out of the blue. It's not just his discoveries, but Lundberg's willingness to share his vision, findings, and technology that have made him an important figure in the history of geophysics in Canada. I'd now like to welcome back to the stage John Baird, Chairman of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, to present the award to Kim Lundberg, grandson of the late Hans Lundberg. John. Well, as a geophysicist, this presentation is a very special one for me because Hans Lundberg really was a visionary. In a 1948 CIM paper, he wrote, as to the communication of data from the field to the office, it is quite evident that within the near future, this will be carried out automatically by specially built machines. Well, the near future had to wait 50 years until we got some field portable computers. And to me, that is a very visionary statement. I'll give you another one from the same CIM paper. The habit of drawing maps that show two dimensions only will be succeeded by new stereoscopic projections so that the geophysical results will be seen in three dimensions. 70 years later, it's a 3D world. And here's one more from the same paper. The age determinations and microchemical sampling of waters, soils, and plant life will be developed into very efficient field methods. Hans Lundberg was surely ahead of his time. Thank you to Hans' grandson, Kim Lundberg, who you saw in the video, for accepting this award on Hans' behalf. Kim, would you please come to the podium? Hey, hey, good evening, everyone. I am Kim Torkelson Lundberg, Hans Torkel Frederick Lundberg's eldest grandson. We called him Farfar, Far, father's father. This suit that I'm wearing is the suit that he wore when he was granted his doctorate in geophysics by the King of Sweden in 1956. The tailor who altered it to fit me was astonished at the quality of the wool. It's still intact, there are no moth holes, nothing. We really haven't treated it very specially except kept it hung up. So that uh, doctorate was awarded to my grandfather for his life work in geophysical spot prospecting, exploration and mineral finds, particularly in Sweden, but also everywhere else in the globe. I'd like to thank the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame for recognizing Hans Lundberg for his wildly successful career, says Peter C. Newman, in geophysics and ground and airborne explorations, pioneering work in those areas through the 1920s to 1970. I would like to thank the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, John Baird, 
and his CMH staff, Deborah Beckles, Carla, for their great assistance in getting us all here, because the table up front here is all progeny from Hans Lundberg. <laughs> Except, of course, for my mom, who was also here. I would like to thank Adrian and her crew from Penda for the short film that we just saw about Far Far. Boy, that struck some chords for me. I'd also like to thank Ken Witherly and the team that he assembled, Richard Smith, Rolf Pedersen, Dave Fountain, Doug Morrison, and Bob Cothrow and others for writing this year's Canadian Mining Hall of Fame nomination application. Thank you also to the Northern Miner, Peter Newman and Pierre Burton and others who have written about my grandfather. But especially, I'd like to thank Farfar's flying team. That's the ground crew and the people who actually flew the airplanes for his geophysical survey using magnetometers. Without this team, none of this would have happened. And it was an extraordinary team. They ran a lab north of Toronto in the late 40s and 1950s, developing all the machines that he made or used. And these are some of the guys that he worked with for almost the entire duration. Lloyd Leach who was the director of field operations and the lab manager, Sten Lundberg, his son and my dad, and John Neufeld, who were pilots, Roly Marriott, Wally Hobbs, and Ben Boyle, mechanics, that's the ground crew, and Bill Brown, who was the navigator and the air-to-ground radio liaison. My mom and I had to sort of brainstorm to remember these guys' names because they're not written down anywhere we could find. Here are a few remembrances of my Farfar. In his father's bound telegrams from about 1909 to 1931-32, I found a telegram from 1926 to Carl T. Lundberg. Congratulations from Antipodes on anniversary, Hans. He was probably in New Zealand, which would be the antipodal spot from Leidinger, across the world by a straight line. And the message is interestingly in English, not Swedish, but it's a laconic and precise message nonetheless. And that certainly describes him as, as I recall. In the mid-1950s, this was talked about in the film a little bit, Farfar's grandchildren, Lee, Sten, and myself were all here tonight with wives. We're at Farfar and Farmore's house when we were distracted by Farfar, who gave us pencil crayons and led us downstairs into the bowels of the house to colorize and help fill in some contour maps of underground rock formations from his geophysical surveys. This is before 3D. These maps were pinned on the walls of his home's huge basement. In 1958, we were at the Burton's home, my mom's parents, that is, and for Christmas festivities. Farfar led a Swedish Christmas folk song and simultaneous serpentine dance from the living room through the French doors into the foyer, around the foyer, back into the living room, around the living room, into the dining room, around the dining room table, back. And by this time, everybody's laughing so hard they could hardly sing the song anymore, including Mike Farfar, who was giggling all the way through. He had to have help singing the song from my dad my dad's wife, Marnie, who's here with us today, and my grandmother, my uh, far more Hans' wife. It went like this. He tumped the goober slowly gloss in the slotus lustigara and litten teed vivara har med bukken moda och stod besvar. He tumped the goober slowly, and it went on, right? And so on, and repeated too far. <laughs> 
30 years teaching music does it, you know. And to Farfar's glee, with much laughter and hilarity from everyone, he loved to sing and dance, and he liked to listen to classical music. Beethoven was his favorite. Through the 1950s to early 1960s, we're often at hands in his wife, Senia's home. Farfar proudly talked with us about the indigenous items that he had collected, he bought, or traded for on his prospecting expeditions, mostly in the Arctic and in northern Canada. There are also ore samples of, from his many mineral finds, and I can mean chunks of rock this big just loaded with emeralds, chunks of rock this big just loaded with gold, and several ore samples just like that. Most of these collections were in, long, in his 100-foot-long living room in two long floor cabinets, which catch us mesmerized for hours and hours when we were visiting. Also, there were more indigenous pieces downstairs on the walls of the immense family room. His stamp collection, which was a passion for him, was in a large walk-in vault in the living room behind a tapestry, into which occasionally we were invited to enter and be shown some of the new stamps for his extensive collection and some individual fantastically valuable stamps. At, some at one point, he had the million-dollar Canadian beaver stamp, one of the first stamps ever printed in Canada. For my interest in stamps, Farfar gave me a Canadian starter album, stamp packs, loose stamps, and some first-day-issue Canadian stamp blocks signed by the artist. These examples were me then, tangible indicators of his success. Thank you very much for this moment in time. And let us all have a great and prosperous new year. Thank you. Adieu. And we would like to thank you once again for joining the Northern Miner podcast here online and everywhere. And feel free to share this with your friends. Feel free to leave us a review in the podcast directory. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Mine Expo, once again for their support. Go see them at mineexpo.com. Until next week, take care. <laughs> <laughs>